Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chesesky Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about how artificial intelligence is making some headway in medicine and take a closer look at something that has floated around in the news in the past few months, criticism of racial discrimination in the college admissions process at Harvard. Let's get started. Susan, did you catch Michael Jordan's post, Artificial Intelligence, The Revolution Hasn't Happened Yet, that appeared at some point last April, that's of 2018? Unfortunately not. But for those of you that don't know, we should take a pause and mention that we're not talking about the Chicago Bulls basketball player or the Black Panther actor. We are, in fact, talking about Michael Jordan, the statistics superstar. Yeah, um, Michael Jordan's a professor of statistics, computer science, and electrical engineering at UC Berkeley. But um, I don't actually want to focus on his article as a whole right now, but there's a story that he included in the introduction that I, I found quite interesting. Um, he told a story about when his wife was pregnant with their daughter 14 years ago, and um, his wife had an ultrasound. And um, during the ultrasound, or, or I guess after, a geneticist noted some white spots around the heart of the fetus, which apparently is a marker for Down syndrome. And so follow-up testing was recommended, but it turned out that follow-up testing meant, yeah, I might not be pronouncing this correctly, but I think it's amniocentesis, um, which is a test that carries with it a risk of one in 300 of actually killing the fetus. Wow. So for every 300 women who undergo the test, one will have a dead fetus. That's a pretty risky follow-up test. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so Michael Jordan, um, being the data scientist, statistician, computer scientist, um, wanted to, to better understand um, the concerns with the white spots before making the decision on um, whether to actually go through with the test. And so he had learned that this um, diagnosis procedure relating the, the white spots to Down syndrome was from a study that had been carried out a decade earlier. And it turns out that new ultrasound imaging machines had a significantly higher resolution, like on the order of a few hundred more pixels per square inch. Uh, so the study that gave rise to this suggested link between the white spots and Down syndrome used an older machine. And so a few white spots on the older machine might not be exactly the same as a few white spots on the newer machine. With higher resolution, I'm thinking the equivalent of just a few white spots on the older machine might be more like solid blobs or something on the newer machine. Yeah. And so for that reason, the white spots the geneticists found were likely you know, just noise that were present in the image. That must be quite a relief. Yeah, um, so interestingly, upon learning about the insight about the, the higher resolution data, um, the geneticists had responded that, um, that that actually explains why they started seeing an uptick in Down syndrome diagnosis a, a few years ago when they got this new ultrasound machine. Wow, so I guess at this point, did Dr. Jordan and his wife opt for the test? Um, nope, they actually ended up skipping the test and um, had a healthy baby girl. And um, he noted that because of this missed insight earlier, though, I mean, a number of babies died due to the amniocentesis um, when really their classification as at risk for Down syndrome was, was probably flawed. 
So Professor Jordan's story just really struck me. Um, it helps to emphasize the importance of analysis and um, diagnosis methods, just keeping up with the technology that's being used. And also the importance sort of, of realizing when methods are developed for one type of data, they're not necessarily going to be directly applicable for another. Yes, and um, this brings us to a review article I came across in Nature Medicine recently. Um, the article is by Eric J. Topol and is about the use of artificial intelligence, um, specifically deep neural networks in medicine. Um, he discusses the use by clinicians, health systems, and patients, but um, today I just wanted to focus here on some illustrations of the clinical uses of deep neural networks. Deep neural networks. So maybe it's time to give a brief summary of what deep neural networks are. Deep neural networks have become a very popular tool in machine learning these days, and essentially it allows the user to build a complex model that goes between an input layer, typically images, say, of an organ from different patients, um, linking that to an output layer that is the classification of the patient as healthy or not. And deep neural networks are used in many fields nowadays due to their great success at accomplishing a number of tasks, specifically uh, with classification, for example. Yeah, so the article gets into a number of examples where deep neural networks are used in the medical field. And so I wanted to just go through some of those examples to illustrate um, kind of the applicability of these, um, these deep neural networks. Cool, let's go for it. First, the author suggests some examples of the, the problems that these artificial intelligence um, methods or algorithms are trying to solve. Um, so it's generally trying to solve problems related to things like um, diagnostic errors or um, mistakes in treatment or wastefulness of resources, workflow inefficiencies, so those sorts of things. Um, and so one example for radiologists um, has to do with the use of these machine learning algorithms for determining if pneumonia is indicated in chest x-rays. And apparently there are about 2 billion chest x-rays performed each year around the world, which it's not all for diagnosing pneumonia, but, um, but it, I had no idea that so many were, were taken. Um, so expediting the review of chest x-rays could actually be a real time saver um, but you'd only want to, you know, to use these algorithms if, it, if they perform at least as well as a clinician. And a study was carried out also to see how well um, a convolutional neural network could classify a frontal chest x-ray then as having pneumonia. And um, they compared the algorithm's performance to um, the performance of four radiologists. And it turned out that the algorithm won. Um, so to the author um, Topol uses um, what's called um, an AUC or area under the curve to assess the performance um, of these algorithms. And let me just loosely say that the AUC provides um, a sort of notion of probability of the, the correct classification of an image. So a value close to one suggests better performance. Um, but so, so for this um, pneumonia convolutional neural network, the AUC was, um, was 0.76. So there's still room for improvement, even if it did outperform the four radiologists. And, um, and Topol also notes that you know, more, than, more than four radiologists should be used to get a better sense of any benefit of an AI algorithm. Yeah, four doesn't really seem enough, but it would be interesting to know whether these four radiologists tended to agree or disagree with each other and how that degree of consensus related to the machine's predictions. 
Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. Um, well, there's another chest X-ray radiology study um, where they considered deep neural networks for detection of cancerous pulmonary nodules, and in this case, they looked at um, 34,000 patients and compared the algorithm result to those of, of 18 radiologists. And in this one, they found the algorithm outperformed 17 of the 18 radiologists. So. In that setting, at least, there's one that was, was different from the 17, but they do not specify how close the, the 17 were to each other. Wait a minute. So 34,000 patients and 18 radiologists, does that mean that every radiologist had to diagnose 34,000 of them or 34,000 divided by 18? Yeah, that, yeah that, that's actually a good question. And I, I was not sure either. Um, I don't know the details of the study, but if that if they each had to do 34,000, that would take a while. It's possible that um, these classifications were also done over a long period, and then they tested the algorithm on the images at a later point. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that seems like it would take a while. Um, it's also noted that AI algorithms have been fit for um, classification of tuberculosis, um, CT scans for lung nodules, um, brain scans searching for signs of hemorrhage, and much more. And then in a slightly different direction, pathologists have been working on AI algorithms for classifying breast cancer, lung cancer, and brain tumors. And even dermatologists are using these sorts of tools to diagnose skin cancer. And one of my favorites is the use by ophthalmologists to check for things like diabetic uh, retinopathy, macular degeneration, and other eye conditions. Ophthalmology is one of your favorites, Jesse. <laughs> It is. Well, so back when I was in graduate school, I actually had an image taken of my retinas and I just thought the image was so cool. And actually, until I got my more, most recent laptop um, just a few months ago, one of my retina images was the backdrop of my desktop. Um, so I don't know. I just thought it's cool. I think eyes are really neat. I have to say I'm a lot more squeamish and I would probably cringe at the sight of my own retina. <laughs> Even so, you're talking about these retinal scans just makes me remember all the puff of air they blow into your eyes to take a picture. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, it's not the most pleasant thing, but if you saw the image, I think you'd appreciate it. It, it, looks, it looks quite pretty. <laughs> um, so, uh, so these AI algorithms are used in cardiology, gastroenterology, and, and mental health. Um, there is some study that was carried out that was um, showing a link between Facebook posts and depression um, later. So that's um, kind of interesting. And then there are a lot of examples of machine learning use in um, just in the medical profession in this article. And so that we're going to link the article on our website. So if you want to read all the details and all the other examples, um, you can certainly do that. Cool. So it sounds like... AI is getting deep into a lot of these medical diagnosis problems. How soon do you think we're able to then walk into a clinic where we don't have to wait in line for a doctor to see us and instead just get our medical exams done by a machine? Well, not, not so fast on that one. Um, Topol notes that there are many limitations and challenges to the use of these AI algorithms in the medical field. And I mean, you could just imagine that it's just great care needs to be taken in testing and just thoroughly analyzing the performance of these algorithms before they're put to general use. Um, like just for, for example, if a single doctor makes a mistake, you know, it's, it's sad and unfortunate, but, um, but it would just typically be a single patient that's affected. Um, but if an algorithm is off and it's widely used, it can harm many, many patients. And so um, 
these algorithms really should not be put to general use until they, they definitely are ready and have been well tested and checked. Um, he says that the work of bringing these deep neural networks and other AI tools to medicine is really still in its infancy. Well, maybe this will inspire some of our listeners to get into the field. That would be wonderful. College application time. This is probably an incredibly stressful period of life we all fondly remember. So you've done your standardized testing, you've written a ton of personal essays, maybe gone to a few interviews, and then you just wait. Is that how you remember this as well, Jesse? Well, so what's funny, so what I remember of college applications is that I had to handwrite them. So, really? Yeah, like I had printed out all the applications and I, we, I took up our dining room table and would, had everything nightly, nicely stacked and I was with a pen carefully writing in my responses to all the different, um, different items. Like, so like, was there no notion of a common application at that time then? There was, if I remember correctly, I feel like it was so long ago, but um, if I remember correctly, there, there was a common application that some schools used, but you didn't fill it out online. You still printed it and like would have to make copies, that wow. sort of thing. I, I mean, I remember having to fill out quite a few though. So I, I don't know how common even the common ones were. Yeah. So, wow. So I take it you, you filled yours out online? <laughs> you know, now that you mention it, you're making me question everything. Like, what am I remembering? The stuff that I filled out online, could it be my PhD applications and not my college applications? I, I thought I did them online, but now I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I did, my PhD ones were online. I, uh, I remember that, but um, <laughs> college ones were, were not. <laughs> you had to put them in the mail. Well, Harvard University has recently come under some scrutiny for their admissions process. It's sort of all over the news. Can't miss it. They're being sued uh, for supposedly discriminating against Asian Americans. Now, being Asian American myself, I confess this is a very complicated issue. There are many sides to the story, and it is hard to find proof either way. But there was an interesting article recently published by Andrew Gelman, Sherrod Gull, and Daniel E. Ho in Boston Review that discusses some of these issues in detail. And as a bonus, they use data. And the basic two sides go like this. Uh, the numbers clearly show that a smaller percentage of Asian Americans are admitted compared to whites, despite Asian Americans having better academic and extracurricular track records. So then that supports the plaintiff's claim that Asian Americans are unfairly held to higher standards in the admission process. At least on the surface, it seems to. Now, Harvard says that a diverse student body is critical to good educations. And beyond that, academic excellence is just not the end-all be-all. It's not what Harvard seeks to optimize in this admissions process. So this has turned into a fight about affirmative action and whether it has caused reverse discrimination. Um, I have to say, it seems really hard to prove either way. And we're not here to talk about the politics. We're not here to talk about whether we believe the plaintiffs have merits to their claims, but we want to talk about the numbers and whether or not they are sufficient. By the way, if you were looking for the numbers that were used in these trials, you can find them online. Um, fair warning, these are buried in lengthy reports that are several hundreds of pages long. So we'll link them on our website, but not a fun read by any means. Now, Dr. Gelman and his team looked at these numbers. They actually dug through the hundreds of pages of materials um, to help us 
just have a vague sense of what's important here. The first thing that he notes is that um, Harvard does look beyond ac academic excellence. Um, in fact, Harvard says that they consider factors such as athletics, character, and family connections. Um, that sounds pretty, um, pretty serious, but family connections just means <laughs> legacy. And then there is a personal quality score that Harvard sort of defines on a numeric scale from one to six. Lower is actually better on the scale, so one is outstanding and six is labeled as worrisome. Now, these numbers show that Asian Americans tend to uh, do worse on personal quality compared to whites. And how does Harvard determine this, um, this personal quality score for each applicant? Harvard admits that this is very subjective. The score is, at least in spirit, meant to encapsulate humor, sensitivity, grit, leadership, integrity, helpfulness, courage, kindness, and many other qualities. I'm literally quoting from what they say. And that is definitely a lot to infer from a, a simple college application. Um, it certainly is a challenge to come across as simultaneously funny, kind, and sensitive in essay form, let alone courageous. But oh I guess <laughs> maybe, some, maybe some do. I don't know. <laughs> and these numbers show that after you control for legacy status, athleticism, geography, parental occupation, and of course, this personal quality score, there is no difference in admissions rates between Asian Americans and whites. And let's just put this into statistics speak. So those of you who have taken intro stats, what we're saying is that race is no longer a statistically significant predictor of admission outcome after you include all of these other covariates in the model, um, including personal score. Hmm, this seems a bit sketchy. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe it would be good to go into details about why this maybe isn't the most statistically sound approach. Indeed. So to say that the evidence of discrimination disappears after you include personal score in the model just doesn't wipe away the possibility that personal score itself might be racially biased. There's even a special term for this problem. It's called the included variable bias, where your model has correlated predictors that steal significance from each other. So in cases where we in class harp on our students don't ignore multicollinearity. Make sure that your predictors are not sort of related to each other. This is one of those examples where if your predictors are related, you could be masking the underlying effects. So specifically, if personal quality is associated with race, then of course controlling for personal quality in a model before examining the relationship with race will just wipe away um, the relationship between admissions outcome and race. So you mentioned that Asian Americans tend to score lower on the personal quality score um, on the personal quality than whites. Um, how can we see whether this implies racial bias in the personal quality score then? That is a really hard question to answer just due to the way that personal quality scores, um, well, they, they aren't exactly um, formulaic. You have to sort of critique them based on a case-by-case -case, um, basis. An easier task, however, might be to really look at how subjective this score really is, how much it might vary between one scorer and the next. So applicants who get admitted often will receive two personal quality score ratings independently, one from an admissions staff member and another from an, an alumni reviewer. 
uh, interviewer rather. So if there's a follow-up interview, typically some Harvard alumnus will um, do the interview and they will then score the applicant again. So um, if we look at these two groups and sort of how they rated individuals, we might get a closer look at just how subjective the score is. And it turns out that alumni ratings didn't seem to favor um, one group or the other um, when we look at how they scored individuals on personal quality. However, the internal admissions staff tended to rate whites higher. And if you look into this article that we'll link, Dr. Gelman also included a very fascinating plot that looked at relating personal ratings to academic strength of applicants um, stratified by race. So if at all we think that academic excellence is important, then we might want to look at this plot and see just how differently our um, individuals scored um, by race and by academic um, rating. So based on this plot, you would see that sort of the difference in how staff and alumni perceive personal quality is just systematically different across the board. Um, it's not a smoking gun for, for, the, for the case, but it sort of shows you just how subjective this particular and rather important ingredient is um, for getting into Harvard. Yeah, I guess we'll see what comes out of this, um, I guess, rather drawn out court case. Um, perhaps it might change how admissions process works at Harvard, though. Oh, yes. And it might even affect how affirmative action works at other institutions across the country. So I guess we'll just have to see what happens. Yes, we will stay tuned. Before we sign off, we received a question from a listener named Dylan. Um, Dylan wrote, where do you guys read about happenings in statistics and data science? Are there any websites or magazines, Twitter accounts, blogs, which you read slash follow to hear about news and results in the general statistics and data science world, or perhaps those um, relevant to work, to the work you do? Excellent question, Dylan. And I think the answer to this will vary from person to person is, when I say that, I mean the audience. <laughs> like, for example, if you're someone who wants to get a general perspective of interesting things that are happening outside of academia, um, to find podcast ideas, for example, um, we look at a number of blogs and websites. Um, 538 is a really good one. Um, some subreddits are pretty good as well. For example, the subreddit for machine learning or data is beautiful. We've talked about some of these here on this podcast already. Yeah, there are some um, statistics options um, like Significance Magazine, Chance, and um, really just even Amstat News tend to have interesting articles. Also, NYU puts out a, um, a data science community newsletter that you can sign up for. If you're interested in keeping up to date with computing aspects of things, um, stuff that's related to software, high-performance computing, and so on, you might also follow our bloggers or the Revolution Analytics blog. They actually give some pretty nice concrete examples of new software packages and how to use them. Um, there's also a ton of AI machine learning oriented blogs. Um, Towards Data Science is a blog from medium.com that is user contributed, so a bit eclectic, but, um, but then moderated, so the quality is generally pretty high. Some professors also have their own blogs, like Andrew Gelman of Columbia University has a blog, and that's how I came across this piece he did for the Harvard racial bias case. And if you're looking for snappier things that can maybe make you popular in these cocktail parties, it doesn't hurt to read more tech blogs as well, like Ars Technica. They often feature a lot of applications of data science in tech. 
Yeah, so thanks for the question, Dylan. Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. Yay, we now have an email address. Indeed, it's been a long time, but it just made sense. And if you want to see the numerous articles served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.